Hey, y'all. If you're listening to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that the political situation we find ourselves in right now is not a drill. We need everyone to be doing their part. For white folks, we've heard time and time again from movement leaders of color, y'all go get your people. We need white folks to be committing to anti-racist work and undermining white supremacy in 2020. I'm a proud member of showing up for racial justice because this is exactly what Surge is trying to do. We have big plans for 2020 and we need y'all's help. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge before the year is over. You can donate online at showingupforracialjustice.org. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. So welcome back to this week's episode of The Word is Resistance, where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, maybe even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, aka the times in which we are living today. My name is Grace. My pronouns are she and her, and I live on Lenny the Lenape land, also known as Philadelphia. I'm a queer femme Episcopalian seminary dropout from southwestern Virginia and an upper middle class background. I like dachshunds, sitting with friends at my dinner table in the ocean. And also, this is my first contribution to the word as resistance and my first podcast ever. So, you know, maybe go easy on me or, as is our custom in 2019, rip me to shreds in the comments section. I'm here for all of it. Normally, this is the part of the intro where we say, what do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about the role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? But full disclosure, I'm not white. I identify as East Asian and multiracial, and I'm also on the board for showing up for racial justice. There are lots of reasons why non-white people might choose to organize in white communities, which is what drew me to Surge. Hey, multiracial folks out there and other people of color who find themselves in this situation, hit me up if you ever want to talk about that. This podcast, a product of Surge Faith, is generally geared towards white folks to recognize that white people in particular have a specific responsibility to committing themselves to resisting white supremacy. We all have a role in resisting systemic injustice that we benefit from. The live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement that you heard moments ago and will hear throughout the podcast is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. So last week, a big thing happened in my home state of Virginia, in Richmond, the state's capital, which is also the historic capital of the Confederate States, Black artist Kehinde Wiley's 27-foot bronze statue entitled Rumors of War was unveiled outside of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. The statue is a stunning depiction of a young Black person riding atop a horse in mid-stride. The rider is wearing Nikes and a hoodie, their locks pulled back with a band, their chest puffed up proudly, holding the horse's reins with one hand, their head thrown back in an easy confidence. 
Now, what's significant about this statue is not only its obvious power and beauty, but its location. Rumors of War rises up out of that southern clay earth only one mile from Monument Avenue, the historic boulevard of Richmond where a half a dozen statues of Confederate leaders lord over the landscape. Stonewall Jackson, Jefferson Davis, and the crown jewel, of course, General Robert E. Lee. Wiley's statue is an obvious riff off of the styles of these Confederate statues that, by the way, were erected in Richmond anywhere between 15 and 65 years after the South lost the Civil War. I lived and organized in Charlottesville, Virginia, before, during, and after the white supremacist attacks of the summer of 2017, the summer that began with the proposed removal of a statue, just like the ones on Monument Avenue. Many of my comrades from Charlottesville drove the hour east to Richmond for the unveiling. I watched as the Instagram stories started to appear in the feeds of people I love, people I had stood shoulder to shoulder with in the streets of Charlottesville that summer, people who still have to walk in the shadow of that statue in their city every day. I scrolled through dozens of posts, feeling grateful that so many of my friends were able to make the trip to Richmond that night. But what I noticed was that these social media postings came without any comment. No caption to the video of the sheet as it fell from the face of the statue. No cute F white supremacy gif. Hardly any words for context of the photos. Just the image and maybe the sound captured from the murmuring crowd in the video. Just the photo. The night. The statue. The symbol. fourth week of Advent, y'all, and I want to talk about symbols. This week, the gospel text is Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, Matthew's version of the birth narrative. Here's the text. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. 
In this stripped-down version of Matthew's story, the logistics of Jesus' conception are really front and center, as we just heard. It's all of only seven verses, but in that short amount of space, it's made extremely clear over and over again that the child is not Joseph's, that Mary and Joseph definitely did not have sex before or during the pregnancy, and that Mary was most definitely 100% a virgin. So pardon the binary language for a minute as we stroll through this ancient world's marriage customs. We know that women's bodies were policed for many reasons in this time. Women, of course, were of low, lower social ranking and transferred as property from their fathers to their husbands. Walking baby factories, a woman's virginity was important in marriage to ensure that the husband's children were legitimate heirs so that they could properly receive family inheritance and legacy. Daniel J. Harrington, a Roman Catholic priest and scholar, points out a few more helpful facts about marriage in this time. Being engaged to be married was a civil contract with legal consequences arranged through elders and families. Mary and Joseph themselves were young teenagers. According to Deuteronomy 22, because Mary had broken the betrothal, she should be put to death, although it's unknown how often if at all, this was actually practiced. This passage is rife with allusions to proper or improper sex because society deemed it extremely important for all the reasons listed above. Tiptoeing around these stringent purity laws are two tweens who talked to God. But of course, that is not the legacy that endured. The visage of, air quotes, the virgin that was built up across the centuries into modern history, has done incredible harm. Purity culture, an island in the sea of misogyny, has had fatal consequences. This story begat a symbol of a sexless woman onto whom morals were hung and up-ballooned an entire way of controlling people. In Mary's own words, how can this be? Radicals try to reclaim Mary from these clutches. We love her cry of social justice in the Magnificat. We celebrate her obedience to God and her resistance to patriarchy. We really like talking about her womb and her waiting. And this week, I was considering the queer familial undertones in this whole story. Mary gets impregnated by the Holy Spirit, who is so often gendered feminine. So I guess Jesus had two dads and two moms who all helped raise him. Sounds like a queer dream family. No wonder Jesus turned out so great. We've been fighting to get Mary back from the clutches of purity culture's grip. We make art where she's a young, undocumented teen at the border fence or a black mother with her hands up in the crosshairs of a cop's gun, both modern equivalents of Mary's historic experience. Poets creatively reimagine her circumstances, her words, filling in the story about what led this remarkable young woman to take such revolutionary actions. Mary the Virgin and Mary the Rebel. What powerful, divergent symbols we have of this woman and her legacy. Mary, the morally upstanding virgin. Can you picture her? Maybe you were raised in a church that celebrated her virtuousness, her meekness, her piety. Can you see her? Can you feel how she makes you feel? And Mary the Revolutionary, have you imagined her before? Can you see her too? What is she doing? 
What does she make you feel? Have you done anything because of her? But I was recently unsettled from my comforted feeling by my Advent read, queer theologian Lynn Tonstad's book, Queer Theology, which is basically her hot take on the state of queer affairs, queer theological affairs in 2019. I felt flustered as I was reading it, not only because queer theory tends to do that to a person, but because one of her main points is that symbols don't do the work we think they do. We have a belief, she writes, that if we simply discover or construct the right kind of symbols, right social order and right thinking will result. She uses Mary as an example and writes that simply refiguring Mary is not enough to claim her back from purity culture, from heteropatriarchy, from this one-dimensional meek and mild symbol of a woman. The effectiveness of reclaiming this image, says Tonstad, relies on our ability to know the effects symbols will have in order to achieve the social outcomes we want. Ugh, come on, Lynn. Can we have one nice thing? But I don't think Lynn Tonstad actually wants to take away our radical Mary icons. But I do think she just wants us to be thoughtful about what these symbols are doing in our lives and in our organizing. There's a way that we can look at symbols as confirmations of our own goodness. I can look at my Mary icon and think, wow, look at this rad lady. What a world we live in now that could have produced such a thing. They can settle us into believing that they are a product of that right social order. Or they can unsettle us. Mary's call to cast down the mighty from their thrones and lift up the lowly is happening in snatches, in little corners of the world, in whispers at night between two young people who decide to defy their families and societal tradition because of their own radical schemes. But it has not arrived. Let it not be the symbol of something achieved, but a symbol of the work that needs to happen and is happening. Dorothy Day, a Christian anarchist and founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, a radical Christian icon in spite of her own protests, used to say, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed that easily. Ella Baker echoed such a sentiment, encouraging us not to rely on strong leaders, but to build up strong communities. These two brilliant women weren't just being humble in these encouragements, they were being strategic. They saw firsthand that relying heavily on one or two people was not the way to build up the world we need. It didn't allow those people to be people. It didn't build up the capacities of the people themselves. The symbol of Mary the Virgin pulls the real person out of herself, plunks her on a wall in a church and flattens her into an unattainable ideal. Some of purity culture's power comes from its unattainableness. It presupposes failure, shame, and therein derives its control. It's a lofty symbol just out of our grasp. It's almost 2020, y'all. As I said before, this political situation is for real. And we need to democratize our symbols. We need to have symbols that unsettle us, that are in the struggle with us that aren't just cute ideas, but are real, tangible things 
that we can work towards together. keep our radical Marys, our alternative depictions, and may we let them unsettle us. And may we let her be a person, not just a flattened symbol. Because these are the things that will drive us deeper into the work that needs to be done, the work that Mary herself was a part of. Let us take these symbols down off the wall and down from their bronze high horses and put them beside us, in the struggle. They are watching our kids in the long meeting, rubbing our shoulders through that hard conversation, feeling the low of a setback and the high of a victory. Let us allow Mary to be a person in her own story, a young woman who willingly faced death, who hatched a plan with her betrothed in secret to bring a child into the world, who before Jesus was even born, was crossing societal boundaries. Let us be in the work with her as she is with us in the midst of our work. Because part of her work, part of her care work and her birth work and her mama work was rearing and bearing the Christ child named Emmanuel. The text translates that to God is with us, but perhaps a more accurate translation of the spirit of the Hebrew is God who is in common with us, not God who represents something far away and unreal, but God who is right here with us, toiling and hoping, God who is in common with us. Let's go back to my friends at the foot of that statue in Richmond. While politicians were giving speeches, praising the new work for being a symbol of the new Richmond, a symbol of how far we have come, I knew my friends saw it another way. Posting their photos online without words, it was as if they were saying to their online followings, if you know, you know. That is, for those of us who are in and have been in the struggle in Virginia, this new symbol is a herald of the ongoing work, not some sort of post-racial society that we have achieved. It is accompaniment. Accompaniment for those working to free hundreds of Black comrades from jails because of bails they cannot pay. For those organizing against ICE. For those painstakingly tracking state legislation about statue removal in Charlottesville. For those putting their shoulders against the wheels of gentrification and eviction. May these symbols unsettle us and pull us deeper into the world and deeper into the work. Keep resisting.
very grateful for you.